2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Gizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Jacqueline Broad with us. Uh, Jacqueline Broad is a professor of philosophy and also the head of the Monash Philosophy Department uh, in Melbourne, Australia. Her main research uh, area is women's philosophy of the 17th and 18th centuries. Jacqueline, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
2: Uh, can you please introduce yourself first? Give us a little bit background about yourself, how you became interested in philosophy, and especially how you became interested in uh, history of women's philosophy.
0: Sure. Um, well, as you said, I'm uh, currently a professor of philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne. I grew up in Tasmania uh, and from uh a background that did not have any professors in fact did not have any uh, family members who ever went to university um, so I grew up not really knowing what philosophy was um, but in high school uh, I actually went to a matriculation college which as you may know is years 11 and 12 of the high school um, and at that matric well, we studied European literature and we studied books like waiting for Godot and um, Pirandello's six characters in search of an author and dostoyevsky's notes from underground and so on and something that emerged from reading those texts is they, they all had something in common and and that was that they tended to uh well the characters in in the works tended to be searching for meaning tended to be looking for a purpose in life or um some kind of guidelines or policies on how to live because so no one seemed to, uh, to know how to make their lives worthwhile and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was pre- this was pretty much a, a, a unit in philosophy that I was studying and that only really occurred to me when I got to university when uh, the very first um, philosophy subject I took at the University of Tasmania was called the Meaning of Life and uh, in that unit we looked at the possibility. That, you know, your entire life's efforts might be rendered absurd and pointless in a moment. Um, was there some way to avoid a life that was pointless and useless and absurd? And I think, I think I'm still looking for the answers for that. But uh, it was a good grounding in ethical philosophy, of course, moral philosophy and thinking about how one should live um so how did my interest in women philosophers come about well um it was an unfortunate feature of my undergraduate uh, training that we never in fact looked at women philosophers in any of their subjects I taught so even that unit that I was talking about on the meaning of life we looked at Albert Camus we looked at Sartre we looked at a number of figures and of course they were all men and and The University of Tasmania was not unusual at the time for having a curriculum that focused entirely on men. It was actually uh, in the 1990s, this was just a a standard thing. And I found it quite unusual though, because I also did English literature where we looked at a number of women authors, Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, Dorothy Wordsworth, Mary Shelley, it was pretty much 50% women, I think. And so I come to realise that that philosophy had a bit of a woman problem, and in particular, they just weren't there. Um, And it's not that there weren't actually any women in the history of philosophy, that's what I soon discovered. It's just that uh, their works were being neglected by historians of philosophy
2: uh yeah that, that's fascinating because my background is not philosophy but i've been reading history of philosophy and it's kind of uh for yeah it's very much male dominated and like i told you before we started recording the interview i've been doing I, I'm, I'm planning to do a series of interviews on women's philosophers so i'm doing a lot of reading and it's just absolutely amazing a range of a whole range of different philosophers who have also been in contact with main established male philosophers which we'll talk about in a minute but uh, amazingly, their names are kind of either forgotten or a lot of people don't even know about them. And one might just think that maybe they just had a random, you know, foray into philosophy. But when you read their works, they're actually engaging with very, very deep philosophical ideas, quite original and authentic. And we'll be talking about some of these uh, today. But before uh, we start talking about the book, can you tell us how the book came why you decided to write a book about women philosophers their correspondence especially in the 17th century and also tell us who Eileen O'Neill is, because you dedicated the book to her.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thanks Thanks for asking those questions. How did the book come about? Well, I mentioned to you that it very quickly became apparent that there was this significant gap in the history of philosophy when it came to women, um, and that there was work to be done there. And as I said, it was not the case that um, there were no works, it's just that uh, they hadn't been republished, they were still in archives and read, book rooms and so on so this book began uh with my phd basically which was uh more than 20 years ago now and um i for this purpose of my phd uh I had to go and do a lot of archival research. So I was visiting manuscript archives. I was visiting rare book rooms, particularly in England and Europe. Um, Today, of course, I would simply have to stay at home and search the internet, but I feel like I was very lucky at the time because none of this material was online and I got to go and sit uh, in beautiful libraries. I got to uh, do my work in the Duke Humphreys, which is uh, the Bodleian Library. It features in uh, the Harry Potter movies. And during those visits, I ended up reading a lot of letters, a lot of manuscript letters. And I quickly came to the realisation that some of the most interesting contributions by women to debates of the period were going on in their Correspondence, correspondence with, uh, in some cases, quite famous and well-known men uh, whose names uh, may be forgotten to us. But if you um, if you study uh, philosophy at university, you'll you'll know the names John Locke. Uh, Rene Descartes, um, uh, Gottfried Leibniz, uh, and so on. So some quite prominent men were the correspondents of these women. Um, And so I wanted to bring these letters together, but it took me 20 years to do it. So so this book has been in the wings for a long time. I wanted to do it because I thought that if you brought them together as a collection, you could show that um, women actually did make quite a substantial contribution through uh, their correspondence to uh, the history of philosophy in the 17th century um, on a number of issues, metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of religion, ethics, um, and so on. Um, but I thought it's not enough just to put the letters out there on the internet, okay, Cause they, some of them are out there now. So there's, there's photographs of their manuscripts and there's, uh, you know, printed transcriptions out there and so on. But they needed good editing. They needed to be in modern typography. That's, uh, you know, a kind of typeface that we would recognise. Um, they needed an explanation of the background debates that were going on because many of those debates are uh, passed into oblivion and no one has ever heard of them. They also needed explanations of obscure terms, words that we don't use today, or words that we do use, but have completely different meanings. And of course, there would be a number of unfamiliar names in uh, the texts. So that's how um, this edition came about. It, it's me uh, trying to fill in the gaps there and, and make what would be inaccessible to the standard reader become accessible once again to give them the background and the tools they needed. Eileen O'Neill was, in fact, the editor of the book series that this is published in, which is Oxford New Histories of Philosophy. Um, But she was also very much a pioneer in the field of the history of women's philosophy. So she was a philosopher herself, a professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts. UMass in Amherst in the States, and she organised one of the first conferences on the history of women's philosophy back in 1997, so the previous century, Um, and she brought together a number of people who weren't necessarily experts on um, women philosophers, but certainly knew uh, the the background to um, and and, uh, the connections that a number of 17th century men had at the time. Uh, So that was an expert on Descartes talking on Elizabeth of Bohemia. Um, they, they corresponded with one another um, and and also experts on a man called Henry Moore talking about Anne Conway, who's in my book. But it, so it was very exciting for me. And the first time I met Eileen, she was, in fact, discussing the correspondence between Locke masham so um, uh, once I got there I knew I was in the place I needed to be uh, and of course it was very lucky for me to make her acquaintance she examined my PhD thesis she's one of the few people in the world at the time who would have been qualified um, to examine it and uh, she subsequently wrote letters of reference for me and supported uh, promotion applications and things like that so she made it possible for me to build a career studying women, which was really not a path, not a career path that anyone could possibly have taken before her and, and other uh, women in the 1990s um, came into philosophy departments and started doing this research she made it both practically and intellectually possible for me to go on in a career on this topic and of course she also showed great kindness to me and she was a great editor and sadly um she died before the book was published but it has benefited from her um insights and her suggestions about how to order material and so on um so my book the series itself, and even my career, a testament to the tremendous legacy that Eileen left uh, to the history of philosophy, and that's that's why I dedicated the book.
2: Amazing! Uh, I, I've come across her name in a couple of other books, so it's really good to, to know a little bit about her. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about this book a little bit. Uh, you talk about four authors here, and you discuss their, and you present their correspondence with with with, with other philosophers. Uh, when when you analyze their correspondence, do you feel that w- what does it reveal about let's say the depth of the uh, thoughts? Is it that they are randomly engaging with different philosophical ideas, or do you see a trajectory and evolution, or a systematic approach to to some ideas that are of of, of interest to in them?
0: Yeah. Well at first read some of the ideas may appear to be random like you just delve into the book look on the first page you know it does seem like women are discussing ideas that just have just occurred to them but actually when you when you read the the body of the correspondence in the context of later developments in their thoughts and in particular uh, in the context of printed published works that they went on um, to, um, you know, to publish later, you can see an evolution in their thinking on certain topics. You can see recurring themes amidst all the, um, you know, the, the usual sort of banter that goes on in letters. You can see uh, topics uh, occur again and again. To give one example, um, so there, there aren't many letters from Anne Conway, um, but the letters that I have included are from a very early uh, correspondence she had with a Platonist called Henry Moore. And um, he's her mentor and he's, uh, he's teaching her the Cartesian philosophy. And in one letter, she just asks a series of questions and there are no, there's no attempt to answer those questions. In fact, it, it's almost as though uh, she, she wants Moore's guidance on these questions. But um, the questions themselves are very interesting. They they are questions such as well, if the body is sinful, which a number of our philosophers thought it was at the time, if it was a source of vice and, and sin and so on, then why did God create the body and join it together with this more perfect soul, this more noble part of ourselves? And that seems like an innocent uh, question to us, but. When you look at the the entire body of her work, it's a it's a kind of guiding principle that um, governs most of her writing. She, for her um, published work, called "The Principles of the Most Ancient and Modern Philosophy." She asks at the very beginning, "What kind of world would a just and benevolent God create? Would He create a world in which there was this material thing, this let's call it body, which had no life, no perception?" was utterly dead would a just and benevolent god create such a world and she comes to the conclusion no of course not because that material body could never um, improve itself it would be incapable of its own motion it couldn't move forward Um, and so this forms the basis of uh, a theory that in fact Mind uh, and intelligence in fact permeates the entire universe, uh, helps it to move, helps it to perceive and so on. Um, and so seemingly random questions turned out to be guiding thoughts yeah, behind their development of our own original philosophy in her published work. Mm-hmm. Similarly, I have a series of letters by a woman called Elizabeth Burnett and if you just open those letters up randomly too, you see her berating her correspondent who was John Locke uh, for not being charitable, not being humble in uh, a long philosophical disputation he was having with another man. You might think this is just an instance of her uh, sort of telling him off, like basically telling me she'd stay quiet in the future. But then when you look at the correspondence in the context of Burnett's later published work, which was called A Method of Devotion, she actually um, develops in that work a theory about the best way to carry out philosophical disputes. And, of course, in such disagreements, one should be humble, one should have humility, one should not be proud because that's going to lead to anger. You need to be charitable towards the other person's opinion. You need to be open-minded and you can see in that text that there is implicit criticism of Locke there because he himself had a similar guiding philosophy about how to carry out disagreements and it was the same one that she was advocating a philosophy of charity and humility and so on so she was basically pressing Locke um, to follow his own advice here in the letters seemingly uh, berating him as a friend but uh, when you look at the bigger picture you can see that here um, these seemingly random comments are actually part of a bigger picture. Again, I saw my role as an editor to be to point that out where mm. I could. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: and and when when you analyze their letters and correspondence, so uh, what does it achieve? What kind of standard of histories does it achieve that their male counterparts do not achieve?
0: Yeah, well, I um I think uh, letters are really interesting, including the letters of women uh, philosophers um as opposed to looking at uh, the standard treatises of men it, it enables you to see the philosophy at the time as involving more of a dialectic if you like and by that I mean more of a kind of um a pattern of there being arguments for and arguments against and people working out positions together collectively based on feedback and and you know So it gives you a richer sense of philosophy at the time. I mean, look, there are, I should say, there are um, many volumes of the correspondence of men during the period, but it seemed to be quite peripheral to their philosophy and maybe not uh, intimately related to it. But given that... Women only really had the epistolary format in which to explore philosophical ideas, um, including those letters. In you know, and, and and highlighting the contribution they made to the history of philosophy of time does uh, highlight something different to the standard histories of philosophy that look at only the treatises of men, because it, it helps you to see. Philosophy is much more collaborative and cooperative, which, as we know, it really is. It does rely on feedback. It relies on criticism. And one of the nice things about the letters between men and and women philosophers is that um, they weren't afraid to criticise each other, or let, let's put it this way, to, to, to raise polite objections to one another's views, um, which, of course, the men could not do in their printed treatises. It was not thought to be appropriate for a man to criticise a woman in public in such a public forum as a published treatise. So you, they almost never name a woman philosopher. They really name... Um, Men of the period too, although every now and again they will acknowledge that uh, they may have been indebted to some man or other, but they definitely don't um, name women. And I think that's because of a certain etiquette at the time that um, made that um, unseemly or it is inappropriate. Uh, so, but in the letters, of course, and the letters are usually between friends. There's much more of this open spirit of inquiry and pursuit of ideas um, that enables criticisms to be raised and for women to improve their positions in light of that pushing back from the male authors if you like so uh, that's what I think um, adding uh women's letters and the contribution that women made to philosophy from their letters to the history of philosophy I think uh this is what it adds that you know a focus on standard treatises doesn't really um give you
2: and uh so, so in these correspondences, correspondence, they were exchanging ideas with uh, fellow philosophers. Uh, were they just engaging with the ideas that had already been established, or did they have any, let's say, new or authentic or original thoughts as well? And the, what I liked was that in the book, you do mention that even male philosophers kind of tested out their ideas in dialogue with one another. So it's not something that is peculiar to women. So can you talk about that a bit?
0: Yeah, so I think no one ever writes in a vacuum. It was a bit of a myth in the 17th century that these great geniuses just appeared and they didn't read anyone else and they just spun out all these thoughts like cobwebs from their minds, you know. Um, and no one writes in a vacuum. So the women were, were no different to that. They they relied on um, the, you know, the support and the assistance of their male um, interlocutors, their fathers and husbands and friends and so on um and so in that sense um you know they, they are building on in some cases the views of Bale authors however I do think when they did build on top of those views they did come to develop startlingly original views of their own and Conway and Cavendish, so Anne Conway and Margaret Cavendish are two authors whose correspondences I include in the text. Um, When you step back and look at the metaphysical theories they develop, so that's theories of the world, like the nature of the world and God's creation and so on, um, they they have some, they owe some parts of those um, visions to the male philosophers of the time, but they are startlingly different and in particular because they almost veer into kind of atheistic territory in some cases that I think their male uh, contemporaries were not prepared to do so. Um, I'm thinking in particular of um, Margaret Cavendish's viewpoint that there's no spiritual substances in the created world, in the material world, um, and that everything is composed of matter. Um, But Conway too had um, this viewpoint that there's no... Um, substantial distinction between mind and body. This too um, gives rise to a kind of panpsychism that we see in Cadmody's uh, philosophy as well. And, and her contemporaries were very scathing of any kind of panpsychist uh, philosophies of the period. They believed that the only um, entities that think are spiritual, immaterial entities, and that, of course, matter is dead and lifeless and cannot have perception. Um, So I think they were able to be quite original and part of the reason might have been that they didn't have that stuffy scholastic education that their male peers did. They weren't working within the confines of their university education because, of course, uh, they weren't permitted uh, to attend university. In many cases, they were only Educated up to about the age of thirteen, um, so they could read and they could write. As gentlewomen, I should say, the lower classes, of course, um, didn't uh, typically educate girls at all. Um, and so this enabled them to to um, you know think a little more freely. Um, one other way in which they were original is in terms of developing feminist views. Um, they, uh, that of course, that thing doesn't come out as strongly in the letters, I should say, but in some of their published works, uh, you do find um, them using philosophy and critical tools of philosophy to raise questions about women's lack of education, but mainly, but also women's lack of freedom within marriage and, um, and also uh, various other issues that were of particular concern to women, men do raise those questions every now and again, but not with the same force and not with the same centrality of concern in their writings. Um, so, so,
2: uh, did, and did they rely, like, on a male philosopher as a guide to help them navigate these these issues?
0: they did and they they had to so yeah and that's mainly for practical reasons um the reasons that i was just explaining that they weren't educated in universities so that meant also that they didn't have very sophisticated language skills so so they didn't have latin and they didn't have greek so a lot of um european philosophy in the time was written in latin so if you couldn't read it you were sort of prevented of course from Uh, engaging in philosophical reflection on those texts so we find in one correspondence in my book uh, between Moore and Conway Moore actually translates Descartes principles of philosophy from Latin uh, several select chapters for the purpose of teaching Conway the Cartesian philosophy Um, so in that sense Yes, she was very reliant on a male mentor to help her there. Um, they also um, needed men to support them, um, perhaps more um, psychologically or emotionally speaking, because women were actively discouraged from pursuing learning in the period. It, let, let me put it this way, that kind of university learning, what we would see as academic um, studies. Because there was just thought it would take them too far beyond their sphere. Like it was useless learning, if you get what I mean. It was a waste of their time. And of course, fathers were concerned that that would make their daughters unmarriageable. Who wants a learned woman for a wife? That was a a real concern in the period. And then there was another concern, uh, which I think was more myth than anything, which was that too much learning would make women mad. It would send them insane. So... There are many prejudices, many obstacles to pursuing studies. They needed sympathetic men. They needed their brothers and their husbands and their fathers to help them um, navigate the philosophical terrain. Um, But, of course, once they did have a bit of a background training, especially in the Cartesian philosophy, um, they could then go on and they then had uh, those valuable methods and critical thinking skills they needed. Um, because, of course, Cartesian philosophy taught that you didn't need to go to university, you just needed to use your mind, you needed to use that natural logic. So, encouraged women to look within themselves and see that they had all the tools that they needed in order to search for truth and find wisdom and virtue through their own intellectual efforts. So, they needed the men to, to introduce them to that. And then, of course, once Once they had that background and that training in Cartesian philosophy, it was only a simple step towards teaching themselves how to think methodically and how to think critically.
2: Mm. And not all men have have been accommodating or, let's say, uh or complimenting women on this because you talk about robert whitehall so and his comment about women's lack of originality can you talk about that please
0: yeah sure so um so robert whitehall i i'm not sure who he was to tell you the truth he's, he's a nobody he's an oxford poet he's an oxford poet from 1674 but i'd never heard of him before but there is this manuscript very interesting to me because the manuscript is called the woman's right, and you don't hear much talk about women's rights in the period, but when you read the manuscript, it's kind of this um it's kind of this dialogue between Whitehall and, and a woman who is arguing for a woman's right, and he um is taking the negative viewpoint. And he says uh in one part of the manuscript, he says that although some women have arrived to such heights of perfection, as with Aristotle and Descartes, to stand on the mountains of metaphysics and philosophy and view the glories of both, with Tully and Demosthenes have charmed the ear with their ravishing oratory, and with kings and potentates have swayed the scepter of government, yet have any attained to the same pitch with men? And whence drew they these waters out of their own wells? No, these are too shallow. Therefore, Rebecca-like, they bring their pictures to the wells the men had dug. So the Whitehall saying here that, okay, so there's some women who've engaged in philosophy. But he's speaking a kind of sentiment which, unfortunately, is still around today, which is that no woman is really capable of being a topping philosophical genius. Rather, she's just going to build on what the men have done. Men men have done great things. Um, but women, they just ape and mimic. and they—they they, Even the best women are never going to be as good as the best men when it comes to philosophy. It's basically what he's saying there. Um, and, uh, you know... Um, it it's, it's a viewpoint, as I said, it's still around today. There's still a, quite a tendency to see these women as the disciples of men. And to some extent, perhaps um, publishing the philosophical correspondence might confirm some people in that opinion. Um, but it's, I think it's really unfortunate that they're always automatically seen as the disciples of men in the way that Whitehall sees them. Um, Men are given intellectual authority to be leaders in their field, um, to have followers and disciples, but women are almost never given that authority. Why not? Because no one discusses or applauds or studies their works, and because no one discusses or applauds or studies them, they become forgotten. And, of course, that confirms the viewpoint that no woman has ever published anything original. And, of course, it's a vicious cycle and it just goes on and on. Um, so uh, I think Whitehall's being unfair and uncharitable there not seeing that we can stop that vicious cycle by giving women their due and studying them a little bit more closely, and being charitable and, and seeing that, in fact, there are original ideas in there. Of course, it may be that there's nothing new under the sun, but then that should hold even for the men as well because uh, even like the great topping geniuses like Descartes borrowed from other sources and we know that now even though he didn't always explicitly acknowledge it his work were derived from augustine his work derived from aristotle and from the scholastics and so on and a whole bunch of white dudes that came before him you know so um even he wasn't the apparent original thinker that we give him credit for that we still respect him as a sophisticated and um incredibly influential, um, and important thinker. And I think, uh, women likewise, we should give them the benefit of the doubt here.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Mm. So now let's talk about some of these philosophers. You've included four philosophers, and I can tell the first one might be your favorite because it's like seven or 80 pages of the book, <laughs> right, Margaret <Marguerite Cavendish. laughs>
0: So I, I would be happy to talk about her. Uh, she just was. She was just prolific and voluminous, and wrote so much. She wrote at least six lengthy philosophical treatises in her lifetime. She was a Duchess, so Margaret Cavendish was the Duchess of Newcastle, and she lived um, from memory. I think her dates are sixteen twenty three to sixteen seventy three, um, and she was in. She was very lucky. She was very fortunate in her husband, who was very supportive of her um, views, uh, her her uh, her activities, I should say, to her publishing activities. He would always write lovely prefaces praising her her worth and her um, her um, her great philosophical skill. Um, and she, uh, he was part William Cavendish was part of the Newcastle Circle, which included. Um, quite famous philosophers like Thomas Hobbes um, and I think René Descartes used to pop in every now and again as well. Um, so um, would you like me to talk more about her works? Uh,
2: yeah, well, so let's briefly into you just talked about like who she was. Uh, the, uh, topics that I'm kind of interested in, like she you, she had this fictional character that she engaged with Maybe you can talk about some of the male philosophers that she corresponded with, and I, when I was reading about her ideas on um, the innate life of things, I was struck that it's quite modern. Like because uh, I had to read a little bit of Latour, uh, affect theory, and uh, I was struck by how similar arguments were.
0: Right. <laughs> those ideas, yeah. I okay, yeah, sure. So um, the, I've included excerpts from. Uh, book she published called Philosophical Letters where she takes issues with some of the biggest thinkers of her time some of those thinkers won't be familiar to to us today but most will have heard of Descartes and will have heard of Hobbes and so she engages with them in the book Um, but unfortunately Hobbes and Descartes who were her contemporaries were not so interested in engaging with her Um, we have only one letter from Hobbes he wrote to thank her for something she'd sent him and and that was it it was almost a little bit dismissive she met him and she was party or witness to the conversations he had about liberty which were later a very famously published with um, uh, the debates about liberty with a man called Bramhall um, and her husband Margaret Cavendish's husband was part of um that dialogue too I take it um so she was mixing with the the bigwigs and, and also she had dinner with Descartes but she says he never said a single word to her because he didn't speak English and she didn't speak French so and she was also I should say she was also painfully shy so she has this imaginary correspondent in her philosophical letters and I think it's part of the reason first of all she didn't have anyone she certainly didn't seem to have other women that she could talk to these issues about Um, but she's developed this device, this imaginary pen pal, and she writes to this person and this person just happens to ask the best kind of questions so that Margaret Cavendish can spell out her views on all these philosophers and in the process of spelling out where she stands in relation to these male philosophers' views, she spells out her own, uh, philosophy. So I think it's very convenient for her to have this device because this woman, um, Uh, presumably this woman correspondent she has she just calls her madam has no schooling uh has perhaps no intimate knowledge of the scholastic philosophy and terminology that a male correspondent would have had and she just asks her questions about margaret cavendish's idea so um it's a convenient tool it's a little bit artificial of course because these are just, um, you know, in a way, it's also just a way of um, presenting the work without having to have a structure because it's just letter after letter, and there's just um, there's no real method or consistency there, and how the ideas are discussed. And there's a lot of repetition. Uh, it's still a lot of fun um, to read. Yeah. Oh well, would you like me now to? Sorry. Perhaps we should have this part edited out where because of course you asked me what the content of the her philosophy was and you thought it sounded very modern shall i start uh sorry you've gone uh
2: you've- oh sorry uh, my microphone was on mute yeah. i forgot to unmute I understand it. that's
0: yes. all right we can we can edit this out <laughs> that's
2: fine so, uh, I, yeah, I'm actually interested to know more about her ideas as well. And like you said, she talked about uh, the the innate life of things. If I'm not that's mistaken, right. yeah,
0: that's right. Um, so, uh, yes, it's a it's a very um, it's a very original theory, but it also has some affinity to the Stoic philosophy. So, her viewpoint is, is that the entire universe is composed of matter, of physical substance. But that substance has two kind of principles um, innate in it, if you like. It has an active principle and and a passive one, so to speak. There's animate matter, and that's made up of reason and sense. And then there's inanimate matter, um, which is the dull material that the animate matter acts on and shapes and designs and so on. Um, So... The idea behind this philosophy is that it is essentially panpsychist. Take any particle of matter you like, and it's composed of life and sense and reason and intelligence. Maybe not the same intelligence that you and I have because we are composed as um, sophisticated human beings with uh, conscious minds and so on, but there's nevertheless a mental aspect to every particle of matter in the universe. Um, And so this influences her causal theory. You know, we think that um, when you... um, uh, you know um, see something see a sheep um, that there is, uh, you know or well, at least a contemporary thought there are certain particles that uh, interact with your eye and uh, she actually thought that your eye does the active work there of patterning out what it sees there's something um, alive within uh, material substance that enables it to imitate uh, what it sees a, a bizarre kind of causal theory but not not, um, so, um, not so, not um, so beyond the realms of possibility. Uh, there are some philosophers who hold views that are not unlike us, I and mean, you mentioned that you saw similarities in uh, one author and there are certainly panpsychists today who are keen to defend the theory from the usual kind of objections it gets like oh does that mean when we tread on rocks in the streets that they're crying out in pain but we can't hear them kind of thing you know they um she tries to address those kind of absurdities in her work as well um so highly original uh, viewpoint like Almost nothing else in the period um, developed from her opposition to some of these figures who see matters as dead and lifeless and without perception.
2: And uh, she also was, she she, she also kind of, like her ideas about these these issues evolved and she changed later on her ideas, as you have pointed out in her correspondence. So you can see that maybe they are uh, critical of their own work constantly yeah. trying to kind of improve upon that
0: yeah totally because when she first began she was actually an atomist so that was that was typical of the newcastle circle i was talking about there were atomists amongst that group um uh, Gassendi, Gassondi, uh the french thinker he was uh, an atomist who an epicurean atomist who was part of that group and so on she moved away from that and she moved away from this viewpoint first of all that there are atoms so she, she moved to a theory that in fact that nature the material world took place in a plenum so there were no no vacuums and then she also um she also eliminated the language of spirits from her um her philosophy so many of her contemporaries thought that spirits in nature were responsible for all the life emotion material things so yes there is this dead material substance let's call it matter or body And um, how does it get moving like this is one of the puzzles of the period like how does it spark into life and and her contemporaries thought it was spiritual substance that did that, that had, um, you know, it could give things force and energy and so on. But she thought it was inherent to matter itself because all matter is alive in some respect and all of it has this designing force permeated throughout it. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so um, she, uh, she developed her theory to get rid of those spirits, so that, that's there early on. The kind of the kind almost like the kind of theory her contemporaries were developing. But she got bolder, and she, uh, I think, the um, correspondences and uh, she did actually have some real correspondences with men. I should add with Charlton and and Glanville, and there I've included letters in the volume. These gave her uh, the confidence, I think, to develop her own views. And of course, I think just naturally you get older and you and you give up on trying to um please others and you uh, go out there and you develop your own uh philosophy which unfortunately for her was kind of branded her a bit of a heretic and an atheist but of course she was a duchess so no one said that to her face so mm. she was pretty safe <laughs> <laughs> mm.
2: uh, let's talk about Anne conway she also had like some great ideas on the idea of god and creation so and she was also in touch with henry moore um uh, so That's maybe, right. Yeah. yeah.
0: So they all so so she lived around the same time as um Margaret Cavendish as well, and in fact she knew of her. I don't think she wanted to associate with her terribly much, which is a bit unfortunate because she would have been the perfect correspondent and Cavendish wouldn't have had to have imagined um, her female correspondent in the philosophical letters. Um, Anne Conway was um, a a woman who uh, met uh, this man, Henry Moore, when she was in her late teens. He was the tutor of her brother at Christ College, Cambridge. So he was a Platonist, a very learned man. They struck up a friendship, and um, in the letters I've included in the volume, you can see him... um, Giving her one of the very first uh, Cartesian correspondence courses. So, a, a correspondence course on Descartes' philosophy and, and the principles of philosophy, which, as I said earlier, he translated for her. And um, this enabled her uh, to, again, to develop the kind of confidence to develop her own views. And in her later philosophy, interestingly, she actually takes issue with a number of Henry Moore's ideas. So, as I said, um, she was principally concerned with what kind of world would a just and benevolent God create. And Henry Moore thought that, uh, you know, in the created world there were minds and there were bodies and they interacted by means of this vital congruity. And every now and again, um, the well, um, not just every now and again, but in every um, different level of life, uh, spirits would take bodies as their terrestrial vehicles and use them um, until, of course, those vehicles died and they had to move on to some other sphere. And she thought this was uh, nonsense, um, that, in fact, all of creation emanates from the divine. So it was an emanative uh, model of causation here where all life and matter uh, that takes place in the universe emanates from God's life and matter Um well, God isn't a material being, but God's life and um, activity, let's say. Um, and uh, this led to her to have radical differences with this There aren't just uh, spiritual things out there that have to take a, a body as a vehicle in order to um, move in the material world. Rather, all matter is um, just, uh, you know, is is um, just a different a hardened form of spirit, if you like. And so it naturally has its own power of motion and perception and so on. So it sounds, I know it must sound a lot like Cavendish's philosophy and it is interesting that two women philosophers in the period have such a similar metaphysical theory. But, of course, there are radically different starting points here because Conway was more of a religious thinker. Um, In her later life, she actually joined the Quakers, which was very controversial, and that led to... Almost a, a, a complete breach with Henry Moore because the Quakers, um, who were a um, Protestant religious sect of the period, were um, just a new uh, sect of the period, um, they uh, were treated with suspicion and um, not uh, exactly embraced by the, um, the you know, conventional society.
2: And, and uh, she wasn't necessarily just passively receiving ideas from, say, uh, Henry Moore, no. right? She became critical of yeah. his philosophy, maybe?
0: Yeah. I think it's because she really did think very carefully about what God's attributes implied for his creation. So here's this difference with Kamenish I was talking about. Kamenish just says, let's just put spiritual substance aside and let's put God aside in all supernatural things including witches and demons. She didn't believe in any of that, but many of her contemporaries did. But Conway on the other hand starts with God and she builds her entire philosophy on the basis of what a just and benevolent God, what kind of creation he would have. And of course he would have one that uh, did not condemn people to hell for all time. So this was very radical view of the period would give every life form an opportunity to improve itself to become better um and of course she she also posited um an intermediary between god and his creation that he, she variously called middle nature or uh, or christ jesus christ um so um, it, it this led to radical differences between her and Moore, just this very starting point. I think she thought that Moore should have started there because he did believe in a just and benevolent God and he really did need to think more about what God's justice would imply for created things and that they all needed to share in God's attributes in some way or reflect God's attributes. And she, she um, became bold enough in her later works to actively criticise the fact that he didn't, Follow through on those implications
2: in his own philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, how about uh, the next, the third philosophy to talk about in the book? Uh, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Damaris Cutworth Masham, right? Yes. So,
0: yeah. I, I just, I'm straight, uh, You know, I just, I just go for it in, in bold Australian. I just call it Damaris Masham, <laughs> Damaris Masham. Um, but there's some controversy about that because when I recall, uh, one scholar um, took issue with calling her Masham and um, said, uh, Masham is something you do to potatoes. It is Marsham. So Goods Queen English is Marsham, but there's no R there to to Australian, it's Masham. So Daris Masham was a moral philosopher of the time. She was a close friend of a very famous uh, British philosopher, John Locke, whose ideas uh, we still discuss today. Um, she was very fortunate to have met him in her early 20s and um, she met him through mutual friends. And he immediately had to go into exile because he was uh, plotting a revolution <laughs> the... the um, the the stories vary on that but he he went into exile because um he didn't feel welcome in England and they corresponded during that period while he was away and when he came back um he met uh with Lady Masham and her husband and they invited him to come and stay at his house and he he spent his final years uh the final uh 15 years or so of his life um at uh, their estate and uh, of course, Masham benefited greatly from having him as a daily interlocutor and he benefited from having her as um, someone to converse with about his ideas. He, he edited and revised many of his books while he lived with her um, and uh, she was, in fact, herself the daughter of a philosopher, uh, another of the Cambridge Platonists. Uh, Friend of Henry Moore's, Ralph Cudworth. Um, so she would likely have had a better education in philosophy than most women of her time. She lived in the rarefied um, atmosphere of Christ College at Cambridge, so she's one of the few women at the time who would have um, had some familiarity and closeness with academic philosophy of the period. Um, and so I think this made her a very uh, very good companion to Locke in his final decade or so of life
2: and and they also uh she, she also had some disagreements with john Locke and and, and and it's great to know that they were not just simply passively be yeah. receiving those ideas yeah. she actively criticized them
0: yes yeah, uh, she did i think you he found Locke. her beneficial for that again it just goes to show how collaborative and cooperative philosophy is even in a period that valorized that wholly original, independent approach to philosophy that John Locke and, and people like him were advocating. So, yeah, they in the letters that I've included, they begin with a quarrel. It's a very friendly quarrel, but um, there's something at stake here because he's kind of challenging her upbringing in that Platonist epistemology that she was so familiar with. One of her Platonist contemporaries, uh, John Smith, had argued that the very highest state of knowledge was one in which you were so purified you had, you know, you had engaged in this kind of meditative life, which meant that you had opened yourself up to receive direct divine inspiration from God. And so they were arguing about is this the highest kind of knowledge? And Locke's viewpoint, if you if anyone's read Locke, they'll know straight away that he would say, this just doesn't qualify as knowledge. It doesn't qualify as knowledge because um, knowledge is something that God Gives to us indirectly um, by bestowing us with the capacity for reason that we then use uh, to, um, you know, uh, to to fathom uh, certain truths and so on. And God doesn't 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 give us direct inspiration. Of course, Locke's worry was that um, this these claims to direct divine inspiration gave rise to political controversies and religious ones, or religious political controversies in which certain groups of people claim to have the truth directly delivered to them by god and they were not beholden to reason they didn't have to give rational arguments for their beliefs and this was very troubling because uh, locke thought that all beliefs needed to be um, passed by the touchstone of reason um, and you could come up with any kind of uh, contradiction here and and have it believed uh, so he was he was a great opponent of um, certain contradictory ideas in religion that people just believed blindly without questioning. And, of course, this left him open to um, charges of heresy and charges of irreligion in his works because he was so keen to challenge um, these baseless um, religious ideas that were not compatible with reason. But Nashon's interesting because... She doesn't want to say outright that the uh, philosophers of her upbringing were um, were kind of religious fanatics who didn't, I think, uh, you know, didn't uh, follow reason, were not obedient to reason. She said she she. Uh, Made him kind of come to this kind of compromise position where he allowed that it could be knowledge, direct divine inspiration could constitute knowledge, provided that it was compatible with reason and didn't introduce any ridiculous, absurd, contradictory ideas. So um, he did, in fact, uh, we know because he published. Um, an additional chapter to one of his most famous works where he discussed this issue, we know that he thought about it a bit more carefully and that she may very well have influenced him to take a more moderate position on on divine inspiration. Um, So uh, in that case... It, the disagreements worked both ways. She eventually came around to his way of thinking mm. about reason as a natural faculty given to us by God, and certainly didn't have any um, kind of religious notions of knowledge creeping into her later epistemology.
2: Mm. And the last person you discuss is Elizabeth Berkeley Burnett or Burnett if I'm I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> so can you, yeah. Can you please introduce her? And uh, what one thing I found interesting about her was that she sort of acted like a like an intermediary in a dispute between John Locke and Edward Stealing Fleet
0: yeah that's right yeah so that once that was known as like one of the most famous disputes in the history of philosophy which is always very surprising to me because it's very long and very boring (laughs) no one ever discusses it anymore but at the time it was a hugely famous dispute so um john locke uh so uh the living uh friend of uh dammas that we were just discussing he he wrote a very famous book the essay concerning human understanding and uh, he said he had heard before he published it that uh, a great storm was coming against it um, because people thought that some of those ideas that he had concerning knowledge and reason and so on and the limits of human understanding would lend themselves to sceptical and atheistic ideas. And uh, you know, history in some ways has kind of proven his critics right to some extent, but at the time he was very keen to defend himself. So when this man... Edward Steelingfleet came out, the Bishop of Worcester came out in, and pointed to the fact that his ideas undermined the doctrine of the Trinity, the seemingly contradictory idea that there are three persons within one person. And, uh, of course, the immateriality and the Im- immortality of the soul Locke thought that we couldn't have an idea of the essence of the soul, and that was thought to be extremely controversial for arguments that the soul would continue to live after the body had died. And also he's thought to have undermined one of the key proofs for the existence of God based upon the idea of God. So there are a number of extremely controversial points in, in Locke's um uh, essay And uh, the man who attacked him, Stillingfleet, we don't really remember him today, but he carried a lot more weight and authority than Locke did at the time. Locke was still pretty much a newcomer and wasn't the giant uh, that we see him today. So he's keen to defend himself, and uh, but he was very quick to anger. In fact, I mean, Locke seems like a very lovely man, but all his all his friends commented that perhaps if he was prone to one vice, it was that he was very quick to get uh, upset about things and angry. And so he was quite angry and resentful at the way Stillingfleet presented his epistemology, his theory of knowledge in uh Stillingfleet's work. And uh and then we have Elizabeth Burnett come in the middle of the debate, friend to Stillingfleet and friend to Locke. And this hasn't been discussed much. It's in the letters. She's She's, um, she's not the best writer. Her spelling is just absolutely atrocious. Even for a woman in the early modern period, her spelling is appalling. But she enters into this debate and she tells him, that he's gone too far, that he's misrepresenting Stillingfleet's arguments, deliberately and willfully misunderstanding what this man is saying and not showing the least bit of charity. Could he please stop doing that? In fact, it would be better, she says, if he didn't say anything at all and unfortunately he didn't heed her advice and he just kept churning out these 300, 400-page books and he would send her presentation copies and... You can see in the correspondence her absolutely dreading to receive them, but commenting on them, you know, from this artless point of view, from this uh, point, the point of view of a friend who wants to mediate between these people and get them to interact in a way that is constructive, that will lead to some kind of um, useful and beneficial outcome. So I think their correspondence is really interesting in that light
2: and her acting as an intermediary between these in this dispute also helped her develop her thoughts in in her book The Method of Devotion.
0: That's right. I mean The Method of Devotion is a very religious work, but uh, there are passages where you know she's commenting about the locks still into a fleet debate and she goes through all the things that would t- mean uh, that disagreements become uh, futile and become uh, fruitless you know and she lists all the things that were going wrong in the lock stealing fleet dispute that one party was not showing charity to the other that they were willfully misreading that there was no humility that there was too much pride at stake that pride is a, a sin in intellectual disputations because it means you're not open to listening to the other person and so I find her work very interesting for uh, underscoring something that Locke himself was trying to put across in his essay, which is that a lot of disputes are needless. A lot of disputes happen and, and they spill over into political context and they can, in fact, lead to violence. And Locke was well aware of that, well aware of that, living through um, a revolution in his time. Um, and so, uh, you know, that it was an important uh, point to get across and um, she, she finds... Um, you know, she explores this to some extent in her method of devotion about the best way to carry out disagreements with people. Uh,
2: before we end this conversation, I, is, is, I just would like to ask if there are any books or projects you're currently working on. And before I answer, I should uh, maybe tell our audience that uh, Jacqueline has promised to have another podcast with us talking about women philosophers' 18th century. Uh, correspondence. It's the book that I just received today, so soon we'll be having another conversation with her about the 18th century philosophers. But is there any other project you're working on, Jacqueline?
0: Yeah, so I'm working on a couple of projects at the moment. The first one is um, it's a uh, an investigation into the philosophical foundations of women's rights in the early modern period. So, a lot of people think that women's rights were a relatively new phenomenon; that they might um, have came along maybe in the sixties, maybe maybe with the suffragists in the late nineteenth century. But, but a relatively recent phenomenon. But my work um, seeks to uncover a recurring logic of women's rights in uh, the sixteenth and seventeenth century, um, and by that I mean. Kind of recurring pattern of thought where women appeal not to rights but to cognate or similar concepts to rights, and those concepts are dignity. Excellency, nobility and worth. And they often play a very similar role um, to rights. In particular, they give women authority and they give them the authority to make normative demands on other people and expect that other people will meet those demands. Um, So that's a very exciting project um, uncovering the hidden and untold history of women's rights prior to the late uh, 18th century. And um, another project I'm working on is, is related but different. It's looking at the Stoic influences on women's um, thought in the early modern period. So there was a bit of a Stoic revival in the 17th century when the works of well-known Stoics such as Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and so on, were being republished and translated such that anybody could read them. And if you look at women's writings, they embraced the Stoic philosophy, this idea that um, our happiness is entirely in our own power, that we need only cultivate um, virtue, which is a skill, the skill of rationally selecting those things that are in accordance with our nature, um, and that we mustn't Um, We mustn't overvalue external things such as wealth and health and so on. Uh, Rather, we must um, realise that our happiness lies in cultivating virtue alone. So you you find that in women's texts. But the reason that this um, strand of stoic thinking in women's philosophy hasn't really been recognised is there's... um, An array of genres they use to explore this issue so letters is one in fact there's a bit of stoicism that comes up in the masham letters Um, they also explore it in their poetry in their religious works their conduct manuals their educational treatises and so on so this is one of the things that has led to women kind of being marginalized in the history of philosophy i think Back in the day, back in the 17th century, even the male philosophers wrote their philosophy in poetry. They used a variety of genres. They were certainly uh, publishing collections of letters and essays and so on. And we seem to have forgotten that by, by just concentrating on the standard philosophical treatise. So if you go to different genres, that goes some way towards um you know reintroducing women into the history of philosophy reincorporating them and and showing that they did make a valuable contribution to the shaping and development of philosophy in their time
2: professor jacqueline brad thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk with us uh, about your wonderful book
0: thanks so much i really enjoyed it thank you